0: Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, we'll be looking at the first 10 verses this morning, and then next week we'll conclude this chapter. Over six years ago, we we held our first public worship services with a series on Galatians. Um, it was sort of as we were transitioning from our home church, which we actually did some worship services for the, a few months in, in our home, uh, just primarily because we didn't want to shock everyone after going from a home Bible study into a church worship service where it was probably going to be different and uh, a little more liturgical than they were used to. And so we wanted to prepare people uh, that, were, that were involved and wanted to be a part of the church. Uh, for that time. So we did start some worship services in our home, but as we gathered in, a, in our first facility, which was on Pulaski Street, we, we began to preach uh, through a series on Galatians, and we didn't do it week, every week. We were kind of doing them as what we called preview services, kind of wish we had just jumped right in, but but we didn't. We took some time uh, to develop and, and to prepare. But anyways, the context of the letter seemed appropriate because Paul was a church planter, He planted churches. He went on three different missionary journeys in which he planted several churches in the provinces of Galatia, Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia. And then after planting those churches, he was writing letters to them, letters of encouragement, oftentimes including instruction, other times uh, just uh, giving them rebuke. And that is really what you find in Galatians, is that last category of rebuke it's galatians is probably the first letter that paul wrote it was written to a group of churches in the southern region of galatia paul had visited the region once or twice on his first missionary journey possibly once on his way out and once on his way back Um, but at least once he visited there you can read about that in in acts um, 13 and 14 he preached the gospel there and established several churches and the letter would have initially been sent to one of those churches and then read in the context of you know in the congregation probably copied down and then passed on to the next church and then it would have gone through sort of a, a circuit in that way i don't I think they call them circular or circuitous letters that were written so it's le- it's letters to the uh, to the galatians but it's recognizing that there's several churches there in the region of galatia um, and so the Since the last visit, some or since Paul's last time visiting there, some false teachers had come through the region, and they would have been known as Judaizers. They came through and taught a a message that was contrary to the one that Paul preached to them. They called into question two things primarily that you find in Galatians. Uh, They called into question his apostolic authority probably challenging you know didn't you know paul paul used to persecute the church why are you listening to him Uh, what makes you think he's going to be on our side right he's he's just being subversive here Um, and so they called in the question is apostolic authority and then they taught a different gospel and we'll get into the details of what that looks like but primarily their message was that faith in christ was only the start of becoming a christian in order to be accepted by God, they must also be circumcised. That was the primary um, aspect of, of, their, uh, of their confusion, was circumcision, but it was also related to, to other kind of um, markers of, of Jewish faith. And they were saying that in order to be a true Christian, you needed to adopt those markers as well. So fundamentally, this letter is about the basis for our relationship with God. The Galatians began to rely upon their ceremonial omen was a true believer or not, especially their circumcision. Now, I don't know how they verified that, but, but that is what they what they were pointing to. Uh, but all of us are, are tempted to base our relationship with God on what we do rather than what Christ has done. All right, we, we all have that tendency. And so it's, there's some relevance here for us, even if our... our uh, complaints or, or, or our concerns are not the same as the Judaizers. We feel justified oftentimes when we've gone to church um, or had our daily quiet time as if that's good enough. <laughs> we just set, we've done that, we've checked it off, and then we can go on with our day. Or if we forget to read or if we, we lose time and we don't do it, we feel condemned. We feel devastated like God is far from us now. I think all of us can relate to those sentiments, to to those feelings of guilt. Well, Galatians is a, a strong rebuke of making the gospel about our works, about what we do. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Anything else is not the gospel. And so before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do have such a too-good-to-be-true, it seems. And yet we know it's true, Lord, you've revealed it to us, and you've opened our eyes to see that truth, and you've given us ears to hear, and you've softened our hearts that we would respond by the work of your Spirit to this display of the beauty of Christ and his sacrificial death on our behalf. Lord, we are, we are filled with joy at the reflection of that gift, and Lord, we offer ourselves to you in response. But Lord, the things that we do are not what make us right with you, it is what Christ has done and accomplished for us. So Lord, help us to remind ourselves of these things as we read this passage. Help us to be once again um, emboldened by the example of Paul. And the clear proclamation of the gospel. Of, of the pure preaching of the gospel. Not, not tainted by, by false pretenses, by false teachers. Lord, help us to understand the content of the gospel this morning. And may it, may it fill us with joy and peace and boldness to go out and declare that as well. It's in Christ's name we ask it. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, notice how quickly Paul jumps to the point of his letter. In fact, um, right there in the beginning, you can summarize the letter with the two words, apostle and grace. Uh, Paul wrote the letter of Galatians as a defense of his apostolic authority and as a defense of the gospel of grace. And so some have condemned Paul's tone. They've suggested that he's too harsh with his language. And they imagine Paul to maybe be shouting at the top of his lungs, wagging and pointing his finger and scowling at all of his readers. But Paul's tone is, is more like a distressed father. Yes, he's, he's yelling, but he's, he's doing it out of love. It's as if the, uh, his son has wandered into oncoming traffic, he's screaming at him to, to, to come back, to return, to repent. <laughs> spiritually speaking, right? So to remain calm on an occasion like that would be unthinkable. It'd be unloving. In fact, I, I'm reminded of, of a scene, there's several scenes in, in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, where the, you know, and I'm talking about the one starring Gene Wilder, actually haven't seen the one with uh, Johnny Depp, and I, I think Johnny Depp's a good actor, but I think they... Um, they went in a totally different direction. I love Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka. Uh, but you remember the moment where they're in this all-white Wonka Vision Room, and there's they're wearing everyone changes into these all-white onesies, and they have these goggles that are white, and they look fo- silly. But um, but Mike TV decides that he wants to be transmitted over from this oversized camera onto a tv in this room and mr wonka tells him there there might be some messy results because you're going to be broken up into a million pieces and then it's going to put you back together on the tv but you know i can't guarantee the that it's that it's all gonna you're gonna leave here in the same you know the same as you came in basically and so Mike tv ignores the warning and he jumps up there in front of the the camera, and he gets zapped. And as he's jumping up, right before uh, the the camera breaks him up into a million pieces and sends him into the TV, um, Willy Wonka says, "Stop! Don't come back." And it's pretty much just like that. Right? Stop! Don't come back. Now the same thing had happened to Augustus Gloop, who fell into the chocolate pond, right? And he was he was being uh, carried under and getting ready to be sucked up, and and his mom's freaking out, saying, what are you going to do? Help him. He says, help, police, murder. It's just this nonchalance, right? This total indifference about what's taking place right now. That, that, That would never have been the case with Paul. You would never have accused him of being indifferent over his children in the faith. He loved them. He was deeply concerned. And that's a good thing. But sometimes that means there's going to be tension. Right? Because, because of that love, because of that desire for them to remain pure in the faith, it results in some tension. So he simply cannot remain calm when his own children in the faith are deserting their only hope. And so the cons- consequences of their actions would have been eternal, detrimental to their faith. And so the, the word gospel is found in this passage five times. And so we'll consider three aspects of that theme this morning. The source of the gospel in verses 1 through 2, the heart of the gospel in verses 3 through 5, and then the exclusivity of the gospel in verses 6 through 10. So the source of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, and the exclusivity of the gospel. Well, let's look at the beginning here, the source of the gospel. In verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's apostleship comes from God, not man. The only reason Paul would need to state this is because at least some of his readers in Galatia were questioning his authority. They had begun to listen to the false teachers. He, he wouldn't have gone into detail about his apostolic authority if they all recognized it. And so he knows he has to defend it. And so he opens up here, giving himself that title, Paul, an apostle. And he, and he goes further. He doesn't just leave it at that. He says, I'm an apostle not by man, but from God. It doesn't matter what you think. I've been called by God, and I'm going to act like an apostle. And so Paul explains himself further in verse 11, which we'll look at next week. But we should recognize at this point the unique qualifications of an apostle. This is what Jesus called the 12 men when he sent them out to preach in Luke chapter 6 and in Mark 3. Uh, what separated an apostle from just everyone's a follower of Christ, but only a few were apostles. Right? These were those whom, Christ, uh, whom Jesus personally called. He appointed them to the task. He commissioned them to preach the gospel. And so only a few men were selected for this office, and because of its unique qualities, there were no successors. It ended. There's an apostolic age that ended with the death of the last apostle. And now you can read about Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Originally, he was named Saul, and he was on his way to Damascus, in fact, persecuting the church. It says in Acts 9.1 that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. His goal was to destroy Christians, to end their communities. And so in the middle of carrying out this violent persecution against the church, Jesus Christ appeared to Saul in this flashing light that blinds him. And he has to, he's instructed to go uh, to Damascus, and to find a man named Ananias who would heal him. And he spent some time th- uh, with the disciples while there. <clears throat> and then it says in that same chapter, 9 verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He, he makes an about face. He goes from pro- persecuting the church on, be- on behalf of the Jews Which he believed was was a mission God was approving of, and then he and then he meets Christ, and it changes him forever. And he goes after after some a season of training and learning and and being with the disciples, he goes right into the synagogues and he begins proclaiming Christ, unashamed of the gospel from the start. Paul went from being one of the most ardent persecutors of the church to an apostle personally commissioned by Christ. And so the source of the gospel is Jesus Christ. The apostles preached about him. That was their mission. That was their purpose in life. In fact, he—it it is the words of Jesus that taught them. You find an example of this in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus' resurrection, and we reference it often because I think it's—it it provides a recognition of how to read all of Scripture <clears throat> should be a paradigm shift for anyone who does not understand that Christ is in the Old Testament, that Christ points, or that the Old Testament is constantly pointing forward to Christ. Because in Luke 24, he, he finds two of his disciples who are mourning in Damascus, or they're on the road, uh, not to Damascus, on the road to Emmaus. And on that journey, they're, they're bothered, they're troubled in spirit, and, and Jesus comes alongside them, and they don't recognize him. And he asks them what's troubling them, and they say, are you the only one who doesn't know, who hasn't heard what happened? <coughs> they're confused about why Jesus had to die. And they're even skeptical about this report that he had risen. And so Jesus says to them in verses 25 through twenty seven, "Oh foolish ones! Slow of heart. First of all, notice he's, he's using strong language there. Oh, foolish ones. He's not trying to pander to them. He's not trying to, to, to make it light. He's uh, causing them to recognize how severe their distrust is at this moment. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is one, one period of time, one evening, that when I get to heaven, I really want the Lord to replay for me. I want to see how Jesus preached the gospel from the old testament he took them through the scriptures all of them and he showed how they pointed to him an incredible experience that ultimately opened the eyes of these disciples as they break bread with him later on and then on another occasion jesus is ta- talking to to the rest of the disciples and in verse 44 of luke 24 he says this these are my words that i spoke to you while i was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So again, he's telling them about himself through all of the Old Testament. This is what the apostles preached. They preached a message about Jesus because Jesus is central in all of Scripture. Paul would not have had any problem if these, false, if these teachers had come through and complimented his message. If they had just kind of filled it out, added more depth or, or something, whatever. But instead, they came through and they contradicted his message. They came through with a different gospel. Paul taught Christ. They taught themselves. They taught a works-based faith. And so he writes to the churches in Galatia in verse 2. And instead of it, he always addresses all of his letters, all of those, the recipients of his letters, he calls them saints. Here he uses a more generic term, churches. Uh, it may imply that tension, right, hinting at what is to follow in the rest of the letter, the rebuke that follows. So, if Jesus Christ personally commissioned the apostles, and if it's his message that they preached, then we do not have the option to ignore their word any more than we have the option to ignore his word. Maybe you have a Bible that has red letters where Jesus is speaking. Oftentimes, you'll hear people kind of pit verses against one another. Well, Jesus said this, so... I'm going to trust Jesus and not what Paul said. No, they don't contradict one another in that way. The black letters are not erased by the red letters. They complement each other. There's no contradictions between Jesus and Paul. So the Bible, all of it, including the Old Testament, is the very word of our Lord. One verse does not cancel out another. The whole Bible is the inspired word of God, and it's the very foundation of this church. It's why you're here, to learn about God, to learn about Jesus Christ. If we, if we start preaching ourselves, I would expect you all to go elsewhere. And if this pulpit begins to, to turn into nothing more than, you know, um, personal stories, which I share from time to time, not opposed to them, but if that's the primary content of my message, then I would expect all of you to leave. You should. You want to learn about the Lord, not about me. So Paul wasn't simply craving people to submit to his authority. He defended his apostolic authority in order to defend his message. And so that gets at the the heart of the gospel in verses 3 through 5. That's our our second point, the heart of the gospel. Paul greets his readers with this common phrase, grace and peace. Uh, Grace would have been the Greek greeting. Peace was the Hebrew greeting, and so he combines them, and he, this was, was common in his epistles. He's combining Greek and Hebrew. It's a recognition. It's a, really it really has theological implications for the unity of the church, God bringing together these two communities into one. And so grace and peace is also short for the gospel. Right? The, the gospel is the unmerited, unearned, loving kindness of God, I love the acronym for grace that you've probably heard. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's, it's Christ paying the penalty and giving us all of the blessings that he earned. Christ, God's riches at Christ's expense. And so when we receive that grace, we're able to rest in the reconciliation that it brings. Rest being a synonym for peace. We can can experience the peace that God intends with himself and with one another. So grace is the root of our salvation, and peace is the fruit that results. And so if you adopt a distorted grace, then you will not find true peace. When you begin to redefine grace, if you add something to grace, you actually subtract from the gospel. Whenever you, uh, the, I mean, w- whenever you add anything to grace, it, it becomes the opposite. So the result is that you get the opposite of peace, which is wrath. The wrath of God remains on every sinner who does not trust in Christ alone, and there are many Christians who are deceived who have adopted a false gospel, and who, who have found a very temporary place of rest, a very worldly rest. And so we learn three important truths about the nature of salvation in verse 4. He says, "...who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father." the three aspects. First, Christ died for our sins. That's, that's what it means when it says he gave himself. In the Lord's Supper, as we'll partake in at the end of the service, we, we say this, this is my body. This is the words of Jesus. This is my body given for you. He's talking about his death that he gave himself for our sins. This is the good news of the gospel. He was our substitute. He died in our place. And then it goes on to say that Christ delivers us from this present evil age. Christ's death on the cross occurred once, and yet it has past, present, and future implications. So John Stott says this in um, his commentary on this passage. Christianity is both a historical and experimental religion. Indeed, one of its chief glories is this marriage between history and experience. Yes, there's things that occurred in the past, historically, but there is a present relevance to your experience of that past sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So John Stott continues, we must never divorce them, history from experience. We cannot do without the work of Christ, nor can we do without the witness of Christ's apostles if we want to enjoy Christ's grace and peace today. So Christ's death brings deliverance, true deliverance from the penalty of sin, but also from its power. God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what Paul writes to the Colossians. Which implies this third statement in verse four. That Christ died according to the will of his father. So the will of the father and the son are never at odds in redemption. Christ gave himself to deliver us according to the will of his father. So Paul gets so caught up in describing the content of the gospel here that he concludes this greeting with a doxology. It's the only time he does that. In verse 4, I mean in verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. The word there for glory, that's doxology. It's where we get the word doxology from. So this is the only time Paul includes a doxology in his greeting, and, it, and it's understandable. He was so caught up in the, in the uh, explanation of grace and of the gospel that he, that he follows it up with praise. It's part of the reason why we conclude with a doxology or some version of that. We conclude our services with that right? because it's a response to all of these tremendous gifts we've received in the worship service. And so it's like being filled with so much joy that you have to sing about it. Some of you are like that, right? You're, you're, when you're really excited, you start to sing things to people. Maybe they think it's a little awkward, but it's just your way of showing how much joy you have. And there's a lot of singing in our home at times. Um, song is powerful. It's a powerful expression of what we believe. And so we should never minimize its importance. Especially when our government wants to. We can never forsake gathering together and expressing it in song the way we do. It's a proper response to the gospel message. There is no other gospel. And so that brings us to the final point. The exclusivity of the gospel in verses 6 through 10. Paul, Paul's urgency here, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm going a little long, but Paul's urgency is, is evident, so I'm going try to try to move faster. He's, he actually skips a section here. Typically in his epistles, um, there's, you have his, his greeting and then followed by a section of thanksgiving. But that's absent here. He doesn't thank the Galatians at all. In fact, instead of a, a thanksgiving, he replaces it with rebuke he warns them and challenges them he's not he doesn't go easy on them he says i am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of christ and are turning to a different gospel notice the the personal nature of paul's claim here the galatians aren't simply abandoning a a concept he didn't say i I can't believe you're so quickly leaving the gospel. No, it's, it's that you're, in fact, abandoning the very person who opened your eyes to the gospel truth. You're abandoning Christ. You're abandoning God the Father and the Holy Spirit when you turn away from the, the pure gospel. What the Galatians have done is abandoned the very person who called them. They've rejected Christ. And so the consequences could not be more serious. And once again, that's why he jumps right into it. He's urgent. The problem was that an external source had, had come in and caused confusion. In verse 7, you see there, no, Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Some have come into your presence and distorted the message I preached. These opponents are known as the Judaizers because they told Gentile believers that coming to Christ was not enough. They told the Galatians that they needed to add certain ceremonial actions to their faith, namely that of circumcision. So Paul was a Pharisee before Christ revealed himself to him. Paul understood full well what legal bondage looked like and felt like. And he understood what these false teachers were putting the Galatians under. He knows what's about to happen to their faith. Having experienced deliverance from that performance-based faith, he wanted to save the Galatians from that heartache. But it was much more than just saving them from heartache. It's actually them recognizing the true gospel. He wanted them to enjoy the freedom that they had in Christ. They weren't simply, the the false teachers weren't simply coming in with a fuzzy theology. Like, hey, I I, I understand, I believe the Trinity, but it's hard to explain, and I'm a little bit cloudy on it. That's not what's happening here. The message was so dangerous that he accurses, he gives them a curse. Calls them false teachers. He says, if any, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats that again in verse 9. The word in, in Greek is anathema. They were to be cut off from Christ and his church. Uh, this is the word that you find um, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Every time they find the word harem in the Old Testament, which was the word used and associated with any time something like an object or a people were devoted to destruction. You find it all throughout Joshua, that word harem. So it's devoting a people or objects to destruction. There could not be a more severe charge leveled against them. And so these false teachers are enemies whom God has rejected, and the curse doesn't just rest on these men only, but even if we are an angel from heaven. So this curse falls upon anyone who distorts the gospel in this way. Christianity is a or sorry, Christianity is accused of being arrogant and, and narrow-minded. But what do we see right now in secular culture? It's, it's this obsession with canceling everyone who disagrees with them. Well, Paul protects the purity of the gospel here rather than cave to the, sensitive, the sensitivities of the culture. He recognizes, he upholds the gospel at all costs, even if it means he himself will be canceled by others. And so we need to be emboldened by his example he, he acknowledges here in verse 10 that he is not a, a man pleaser. Am I now seeking the approval of man? If, if you just read the previous paragraph, how could you think so? But again, that was an accusation against him. Probably similar to something along what he said to the Corinthian church in chapter 9, verse 22. He says, I have become all things to all men. It's possible that people were accusing him because he was, he was willing to use different methods when he was speaking to certain people. His message never changed, but the methods did. And some people said he was compromising in the in that way. Well, taken by itself, you might wonder if, if he was he earned the blame, right? Charging Paul with wavering between two positions. But again, it was for the sake of the gospel. The gospel was always his overriding concern. His message never changed even if his, his methods did. And so when the gospel is first and foremost in our lives, we are willing to accommodate the weaknesses of others. We're able to communicate with those who disagree with us and show love and compassion to them. Paul was only... Uh, uh, so for, for Paul, there was only one true gospel. Its source is Jesus Christ and its heart is grace And peace. And so we oftentimes prepare for opposition from the outside as believers. We think about those who are going to persecute us from the outside, but Galatians warns, and Paul warns the Galatians here, of false teaching from within the church that would destroy it from within. And unfortunately, false teachers continue to wander from church to church, they are wolves in sheep's clothing but it's easy to point our fingers at others, to look at the obvious examples. But the fact of the matter is that each one of us has this amazing tendency to choose sin over Christ. Uh, a quote that I, that I y- use at least every couple years, <clears throat> it's... Um, was one that stood out to me when I was in seminary. First heard it from a commentary by Derek Thomas, but he quotes Octavius Winslow. And he says, This, if there is one consideration more humbling than another to a spiritually minded believer, it is that after all God has done for him, after all the rich displays of his grace, there should still exist in the heart a principle. The tendency of which is to secret, perpetual, and alarming departure from God. It's a powerful warning. It's a powerful thing to consider and a humbling thing to consider, to recognize that we only make a very small beginning in this life as, as we struggle against sin and temptation. We have this same tendency within all of us. And so we never move beyond the need for grace. We never move past the gospel. The true gospel is a gospel of grace. It's a gospel in which our salvation rests entirely outside of our own doing. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling the moment we begin to to think that we contribute anything to the righteousness of Christ for our salvation, we pervert the purity of the gospel. And we, in fact, abandon the one who opened our eyes to that truth. And so let us pray that the Lord would protect us and preserve us from such consequences. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the the. The recognition in Galatians of just the, the importance of the pure proclamation of the gospel. <clears throat> Lord, we don't just want to look at the Galatians as if they're nothing like us. Or, or look at false teachers uh, in our nation or around the world now who, who proclaim something different than the gospel of grace. We think of our own tendency to depart our own tendency to to trust in things other than the completed work of Christ. Lord, may we be reminded this morning of what took place on the cross, that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin, and not just Some generic, vague understanding of sin was placed upon him, but my sin, the sin of those who have placed their faith in him, all of their sin was placed upon him in that moment so that he cried out in anguish and was even forsaken by his father. Declaring, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in that moment, he was defeating sin. He was conquering death in his resurrection. And so the power of the gospel is on full display on the cross and in Jesus' resurrection. And so we should never tire of pointing others to that hope and that truth. And no matter where we are in Scripture, that we would be finding how it, how it teaches us about Christ. Lord, may your word become all the more precious to us. As we transition from this location, Lord, we're so grateful for your provision. We're so grateful that we've had a place to worship you and to, to gather freely and to, to Lord, um, to even grow through this time. But Lord, we we are looking forward to what you have in store for us in this new facility. Lord, as we transition, may we never lose sight of the centrality of the gospel. May we never waver on the importance and the foundation of Scripture, on the centrality of Christ in Scripture. And Lord, as we have the privilege of, of preaching this gospel in the Tower District, Lord, we pray that many would come to know you and that they would not turn so quickly back to a world that offers them nothing but false hopes. May we find our rest. May we find true grace and peace in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.